0: You're listening to the Contemplative Light Podcast with your host, Clint Sabom. Greetings and welcome to the Contemplative Light Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Sabom. Contemplative Light provides education and resources in a global effort of inner transformation through meditation and contemplative prayer. And we've got some cool stuff going on right now. Uh, One new thing that we have is that every Friday evening, I'm going to be doing emotional release and meditation sessions for a group. And it's basically kind of like a guided meditation, but it's a guided emotional release to basically release blocked feelings and Clear away blocked energy that we're holding on to from the past. And, um, anyways, I think I'm on to some really cool stuff. So it is free, and you might want to check that out. I'm putting a link to the sign up page below. Hey, so in this podcast, we have Chris Leward with us, meditation teacher in Thailand or in Thailand right now. And He's a frequent guest on the podcast, so if you like what you hear now, you can listen to his uh, earlier episodes with me. You can also check out our Facebook page, because he's starting to do regular Facebook Lives on our Facebook page at Contemplative Light. Uh, We've got a very active Facebook community, so uh, just letting you know. And then in this uh, episode with him, I'm going to play the student's and kind of just ask Chris a bunch of questions. Maybe some of them will be dumb. Maybe some of them will be off topic, but I think generally I'm going to be asking questions about meditation. So, Chris, it's good to have you. It's
1: great to be back, Glenn. Thanks for the
0: invitation. Sure, sure. I, I wanted to ask you real quick, and this isn't a central part of my questions, but I wanted to ask you about the mantra om mani padme home are you familiar with that mantra
1: it, it, yes well as as familiar as i am with any mantra that's uh one of the ones that i've practiced with and, and tend to gravitate towards yeah it's quite beautiful
0: so you've gone through a period where you prac you practiced with that mantra in particular regularly yeah yeah i st-
1: probably spent maybe six or eight months uh, practicing that mantra. And uh, there are times when I'll go to a temple or a monastery here in Thailand, and it's customary to uh, do a few uh, circumambulations around uh, one of the, they're called jetties here in Thailand, but it's a it's one of the buildings in the monastery grounds. Um, and so you circle it three times doing a, a prayer or a chant, And uh, because I don't know any of the Thai prayers, (laughs) I always chant Om Mane Padme Om uh, when I'm doing that. uh, It is one that I continue to gravitate towards. It's quite beautiful. It means, I think the direct translation uh, means jewel in the lotus. Um, But essentially people uh, use that mantra to generate a type of loving kindness or compassion uh, towards all. All sentient beings, really.
0: Yeah, I'm almost wondering if the jewel and the lotus is kind of like if the human being is the lotus, the jewel is maybe in the heart chakra or in the heart area where everything opens.
1: Hmm. I I, yeah, I really uh, like that interpretation. I think that's beautiful. Uh, And why not uh, go with that? (laughs) Uh, For me, I think. I I, I want to say that the, the um, that uh, the jewel in the lotus uh, s- symbolizes um, being born in in the Buddha realms. <laughs> and here we're getting into the mythic uh, type of language of Buddhism. But uh, um, according to the Tibetan tradition, where this uh, Om Mani Padme Om comes from. Um, if you're, if you, you die in the human body and you've, you've, uh, cultivated, uh, a certain amount of karma, or you have really good karma, or you, you've done a lot of good deeds, you've, uh, cultivated a lot of love and kindness in this lifetime, uh, you'll be reborn in the realm of the Buddha. Now, when a, when a being is born there, they're born into or out of a lotus blossom. So they're literally born out of a lotus flower. Uh and so I I think I think the jewel in the lotus is symbolic of 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 being born into the realm of the Buddha. So each time you go through those syllables, uh you're incarnating uh into a Buddha, basically, or into a being emanating loving kindness, if you will, if that if that uh that can be more palatable to to a secular. Practitioner, uh, each time you go through those syllables, you're, yeah, emanating loving kindness. Uh,
0: sure. Yeah. I I had heard that too. And that's interesting. You, you start to mention the emanation thing because that's kind of where I was going. Because um, I had heard, yeah, this is very much a uh, mantra of compassion. Mm-hmm. And, um, I'm almost wondering what your thoughts are. It's not just the emanation that you put outward into the world, which is going to be great for the world to have for anyone that uses this mantra, but also the internal structure of uh, your energy or your mind or your spirit, whatever terminology you use, your emotions, that saying this mantra somehow shapes your energy into that, kind of structure, like there's an Om Mani Padme Hum um, groove or something through which your uh, being can inhabit.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, we see this with any kind of uh, kind of emotional state that we inhabit, whether it's compassion or loving kindness, or on the other side, if we're inhabiting a, a state of anger or fear, um, our world starts to support that uh and so if we're going inward and and we're cultivating a sense of love and kindness or compassion our world starts to 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 justify that and to verify that uh and so we start to inhabit a more compassionate world or a more loving world uh and and so it's a, it becomes like a feedback loop if you will so we start to do this mantra and, and we it, we feel it internally first or i think most people do at least i i always have uh when i do a mantra like om mani padme hum i feel it in my heart in my mind in my body uh first and and after a week two weeks a month however long uh the practice starts to elicit that internal shift and then we start to see the world in a different way we start to literally inhabit a different world uh, a more compassionate a more loving kindness uh, filled world. And, and then that gives us more confidence to practice deeper because we start to feel this shift and notice this shift in a very profound way. Oh, this mantra must really work. Let's do it another hour a day or let's chant when I'm on the subway or wherever it is. So so, so it starts to um, uh, bring that confidence uh, into the practice. Uh, and then when practice is deeper and then the world becomes even more Uh, a place of uh, verification for that emotional component like
0: that yeah yeah that's very practical so what about this period of six to eight months when you did this mantra did you set a, a certain amount of time like say I just set the timer for say 30 minutes and then you chanted and then you didn't unless it was structured or did you say it all the time throughout the day whenever you were thinking about it and then also the other piece is aloud or silently hmm. well for the formal sitting practice
1: i would do i would set up like you mentioned like a half an hour and i would chant it out loud for maybe 5 or 7 minutes or so and then I would go silent and I would actually allow, as much as I could, allow the thoughts in my mind to also subside and just to feel the emotional component, the the visceral emotion in the body kind of experience. Uh, and so, you know, of course, thoughts will come up and, and that's normal. And we just allow those thoughts to pass through our awareness and come back uh, to the experience, to the emotion of... Compassion of love and kindness, if the thoughts became too like too much just a torrent of thought all of a sudden or get swept away into a story in the mind, then I would bring the mantra back and do it again for another five to seven minutes or so like that. but ideally for me and and this was how I was taught to do it uh, was to do the mantra for out loud for like I said five to seven minutes or so, then maybe spend ten minutes in silence and then do the rest of the meditation out loud, maybe a minute or two at the end in silence, uh, to really allow that the vibration to really settle and to really feel uh, what the emotion, or uh, what the mantra is bringing up uh, uh, in your body, in your heart, in your mind, and to let that settle in silence.
0: So, so, the, so the basic idea is kind of uh, the allowed. This is actually similar to some of the, philosophy of the Jesus prayer that I've come across is, you know, you say it out loud uh, before or as preparation for silently. And you can use the out loud to break, to kind of almost reset and warm your mind back up. Because obviously the danger would be, not that it's so dangerous, but the difficulty would be if you just we're only saying it silently and you just got lost in your head and went on the story and 10 minutes passed and you're like, wait, I haven't, I haven't been saying the mantra. I've been thinking yeah. about something from last week. And then that's basically when you need to say it out loud almost to like, um, prepare your brain again, reprepare. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It reestablishes that base of attention,
1: uh, into the present moment and then you can go from there. Um yeah I haven't done this practice in a while after talking about it now I might go back to it
0: <laughs> um, then, well you know that's funny you say that because I think the last time I had you on I mentioned something about mantras briefly and I had not been using mantras uh regularly when I said that but I think having said that to you almost mm-hmm. kind of piqued my interest and so um, you know, that's kind of how I got on the mantra kick. It was inspired, I think, from one of our conversations about it. But Good. Uh, you, so you were saying basically that you did, though. At times, you would say it in the subway and in, in New York yeah. and, and the that, streets. And that that was when, as I mentioned, um, you know, when you start to,
1: a person who, who practices mantra like this and this is what was happening with me after a few months i started to feel that shift and and notice how how the internal shift was causing my experience of the world to be quite profoundly different uh in a much uh, well in a much nicer way uh and so uh i would start i it inspired me to do it more often uh and you know to do it on the subway or to do it in the library or in the post office or uh, waiting in line at the grocery store it started to become a part of my internal chatter if you will uh and so uh and then it, what I started to notice then is that uh it would be it became a lot easier to continue it when I would meditate in the mornings uh set up the timer for half an hour uh it was much more stable i would get distracted a lot less uh, and things like that so actually my doing it throughout the day uh powered the, the the formal meditation practice and then the the um uh what I was learning experiencing what I was uh, uh gaining in profit if you will uh from the uh formal meditation practice was powering uh, the practice in day-to-day life. So so it became, again, uh, like a feedback loop, if you will. Uh, so the formal practice fueling and inspiring the day-to-day practice, the day-to-day practice fueling and inspiring the formal practice like that.
0: Yes, yes, yes. And the the more you said it, the easier it got to say and the more you wanted to say it because you yeah. were beginning to notice the effects, internal and outer. Yeah, absolutely, yeah um so yeah quite a quite a lovely practice
1: it's a good practice i think for people who have trouble uh sitting in silence because this actually uh you know because that's the t- the typical mindfulness uh meditation practice is to you know sit and follow your breath and watch your thoughts uh this the mantra seems a little bit uh well it can be anyway a little less challenging for people who find silence very you know very challenging uh, because this gives your your well it's not silent first of all so it gives you it gives your ears something to to latch onto uh which can be quite nice also the vibrations in the body of chanting out loud saying this mantra repeatedly out loud over and over again uh can be uh, really um just uh soothing in a way
0: yeah and it's almost like you become the mantra kind yeah. of
1: yeah, I I think that's, you know, one of the ideas of, or one of, I, don't, I hesitate to use the word goal, but I, but I suppose it is a goal of a mantra practice, is to actually uh, unify your body, mind, and heart uh, with the mantra itself. And then uh, eventually one forgets to do the mantra, and you fade into that forgetful space of nothingness. Um, yeah.
0: You get 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 off balance again, and then you bring the mantra, and the mantra kind of resets you in the balance of itself. Yeah, yeah, and that and
1: um, but but it's interesting because if you actually forget, even just for a second, and you're unified with that mantra, you actually fall into into that oneness. That's that's the gap in between the thoughts that so many Zen practitioners talk about finding that gap in between the thoughts that can happen sometimes accidentally with mantra practice uh, because we we forget to chant and then all of a sudden there's just this empty space there
0: and we're unified yeah yeah the, the the mantra is almost a way of yeah unifying the well the, the ego in a sense mm-hmm. it unifies the ego with the formlessness the emptiness the the thoughtlessness the mm-hmm. the Yeah, the emptiness behind the mantra, but I guess what blocks us from getting into just pure emptiness all the time is our ego stuff. And the mantra kind of shapes the ego in a way where it can almost like kind of seamlessly yield into the formlessness. Mm-hmm. yeah absolutely yeah and i think that's the highest
1: stage of mantra practice if i might be mistaken about that i, I again I, I have not done that much mantra practice but uh from my understanding uh one chants the mantra uh eventually you know 24 hours uh, it's just going in the head all of the time uh even while one is sleeping and then eventually one at some point uh whether it's during the day or in the formal practice uh the mind just goes very clear and, and uh it's um and that is that oneness with with everything. Uh one forgets the mantra and then falls into this um into the void, into the emptiness.
0: Uh yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, we had a event today, Contemplative Light did with uh Keith Christich, a centering prayer instructor. And then uh we did a sit and then afterwards some of the participants would talk about their experience and one participant who also is kind of gets credit for inspiring um me getting on a mantra kick now one of the participants had mentioned she'd done christian mantra practice and that the mantra was very much an anchor and and i thought yeah Yeah, it really is. You know, it really is. I think what happened with me is for the longest time, my meditation practice has been simply counting the breaths. Mm -hmm. But I've done that practice so much. It's almost like in the same way you might become the mantra to unify body, soul and, and heart um or mind body soul however you say it the mantra might unify all that I got unified in one two three four (laughs) you know like I I kind of unified my my mind um and spirit basically around counting and and you know it's kind of occurred to me man if I'm gonna entrench something in me like down to the fabric how about use something with some potency for compassion <laughs> and love, like Om Mani Padme Hum, rather than just numbers? You know? Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a uh, that the mantra again, Om Mani Padme Hum. I, maybe I'm partial to it because I studied Tibetan Buddhism for for, for quite some time. And but um, I, I nowadays, if I just start chanting, as I mentioned, I go to the temple here in Thailand. Uh, within a few minutes, it's, it's really, uh, I can feel my whole body vibrating. Um, So there's something there. I I recommend it. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's really good to hear you say all that. Um, I was going to introduce now a different, a different question, I guess. And this is one of the things that I've noticed and it hasn't quite caught up with the meditation practice, although the mantra does kind of help this phenomenon. But I've had this phenomenon of, um, well, I got divorced about a year ago, and there's been this foundational shift that's needed to occur where, like, when I was in my marriage, it was almost as if the anchor, or at least let's just say one of my anchors, was very much in us it was in the marriage it was in the partnership Hmm. and when I divorced and separated um, it's almost like I'm kind of falling back a little bit to the anchor of well just me just being just presence um, not someone else Hmm. and um, in this process I suppose uh, there's been a little bit of on the fence a bit, you know, where it was like, okay, well, I think uh, at a foundational level, I'm almost, I'm like 70% in me and 30% still kind of hanging on to the past. And, And it very much seems like a nervous system conditioning thing where, you know, I was married to someone for eight years and, you know, I just got used to that dynamic. And then the that kind of unconscious architecture all shifts back into the self and, um, and meditation now helps smooth that transition, but it's, it's not like it just, um, hurry, uh, hurries up and gets it done, you mm-hmm. know, like, okay, let's just change channels here. You know, it's not quite that easy, although I've wished it was that easy. And I don't know. I was just wondering if you could speak on it on any of that sure well
1: meditation i, I at least uh, is something i've noticed one of the benefits that i've noticed about meditation is that um it does uh help one um you know when there are turbulent times in life uh Trump trumpa Rinpoche used to say we meditate uh to make the best out of uh, out of a bad situation <laughs> um and so you know because when we when we meditate we we get to know our mind uh, very intimately uh we and we see that um our thoughts are just coming and going experiences um now that can take some time to recognize and and it's challenging uh, uh to 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 be with the mind, and, and because our instruction is is to to find the gap in between the thoughts and let the thoughts go, and not to pay too much attention to the thoughts and things like that. That all sounds really wonderful, but you know, when you start meditating, the thoughts are just there, and they're kind of in your face a lot of the time. Um, but the more we see the thoughts arise and we let them go, we see the thoughts arise and we let them go. The more intimate we become with our our habits of the mind, of our own thinking process. So when we recognize that all of our tension, all of our stress, all of our heartache, all of our attachments are all born in our thought process. Uh, so, So when we really know that, when we really uh, have that experiential uh, knowledge, not just as a philosophy, not just as a, um, you know, something we read in a book once or something like that, but we actually really can see and experience how our thoughts arise, stay for a while and pretend to be all important, and then fade, uh, then we can start to not take them so seriously like that. And so, so in that uh, learning, in that experiential knowledge, we start to be able to release uh, in, uh, in the experience of change. So, so the, the, whatever arises, the, the you used the example of your divorce. Um, I, too, w- uh, went through a really horrible uh, breakup uh, when I was married. Uh, and we were married exactly the same as you, eight years. And I know that can be really intense. Um, and so, but there it is it's, it's that process of knowing that all of that rides in the thinking mind and that as the Buddha often pointed out as many, many spiritual teachers point out whatever arises ceases and so once we really know that we can see the arising of sadness we can see the arising of anger we can see the arising of joy, of bliss, of of laughter. Uh, and we know that it will have a certain lifespan and then it dies away, it fades away. Now the hard part is is that it is the thinking uh, that keeps the sadness in place. It is the thinking that keeps whatever emotion in place. So for example, use the example of anger, because everyone feels anger at some point in their life. So. Uh, anger arises, and then it feels it feels real we We mistake that anger as giving us a real image of the way the world looks. So for example, some driver cuts us off on the road, and so we feel this anger arise in the body and and then we see the world as a way that will justify that anger and so we get this anger in the body and then the thoughts come in the mind immediately the mind is like oh why is that guy driving that way he's crazy where did he get his driver's license i hope they take him to jail whatever all of these thoughts about anger arise so then th- this is where meditation is so powerful is that it lets us let those thoughts go because day in day out you know hour after hour we practice In meditation, seeing our thoughts arise and letting them go. Seeing them arise and letting them go. So then we start to be able to do that in everyday life. So we see the thoughts that are there keeping the anger emotion in place. And we just, oh, that's just thinking. I don't need to be thinking about this incident any longer. We let those thoughts go. It's the thoughts about the situation that keep the emotion in place. And so once we let the thoughts go we can then feel the anger. I actually anger viscerally anger doesn't feel all that bad. It's tension in the abdomen, clenching in the jaw, it might be tension in the shoulders and the chest, our fists might you know ball up. Um but it's manageable. Uh, and so then we allow ourselves to experience the visceral component of the emotion, without the thoughts. Once one can do that, the emotion will eventually subside. Now, if it's something very emotion-based, like a divorce, or, or, or you know we have a fight with a loved one, or with a parent, or something like that, or there, if there's a lot of emotion there, it could take quite some time for that process to happen. It's not like the emotion arises, we say, oh, that's just thinking, we let that go and the emotion's gone forever. (laughs) Very rarely happens that way. Um, So, you know, often, more often what happens is is we recognize the emotion, we say thinking, or we recognize that we're thinking, we let the thoughts go, then we feel the anger in the body for a minute or two, and then there's more thoughts again. And so just to recognize that the thinking process is the fuel for the emotion and to, to be able to separate the two. And that's one of the great gifts of meditation practice is that we eventually be able to separate the thoughts from the emotion. That they're not the same experience. So they're actually two separate experiences that arise almost simultaneously often, uh, but they are two separate experiences uh, in our awareness, you have the visceral experience of the emotion and then the thoughts, uh, which keep the emotion in place and really perpetuate the emotion. They validate the feeling, the emotion. And you hear people say this all the time Oh, you know, that guy made me so angry. Anybody would feel that angry if that person, you know, cut them off the road, you know, and they start to validate it. And they, it really feels like uh, that's the way the world should be. Um, but then there again, it's only the thinking mind that keeps that validation in place and keeps the emotion alive for us.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's like the thoughts are getting in the way of just feeling things fully and feeling things clean, you know, and I've, I've, you know, I really noticed that there's a Zen phrase that comes to mind of, you know, the perfect way is one that is free from all preferences. Mm -hmm. And I find that there's just certain preferences or it's more than a preference, really. It's like an insistence that uh, this shouldn't be that way. This is this way, but it should be that way. Or, you know, this is not how it's supposed to be. I should be like this. And it's those thoughts that kind of keep the emotions I guess, really, really backed up. I think that's why what's helpful for me. And I'm curious what you say about this is the don't know mind because the don't know mind is basically saying, okay, these thoughts really don't matter that much. I don't really know for sure Mm. about this or that. And then the emotions can flow freer.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's another great practice. Um, you know, one one can go into a meditation practice and and continually ask the question, "What is this?" And that's a very that's uh, comes from the Zen tradition as well, um, where you just you feel the breath and then you ask, "What what is this feeling?" You know, or "What is this feeling in my legs?" What what is this wall that I'm looking at? And it, it almost sounds silly, you know, when when you speak of it like this, but but what happens is that if you really continually ask yourself this question, "What is this? What is this?" you can continually ask. You start to realize that you really don't know much at all, <laughs> and we think we do. You know, we think we know. You know what the breath is, but do we really know uh, uh, the visceral experience of each breath? You know, what is that, and why do we feel that? And so when we when we start to bring this inquisition. To every minute detail of our experience, the way one would do in a Zen practice, uh, you, it be, it, the whole world becomes exciting again because you really inhabit a world of don't know mind. Uh, and what could be more exciting than uh, stepping out on the street that you've walked down for the past 10 years, but all of a sudden, I don't know what the next step is going to feel like. I don't know what's around the next corner. You know, I, and, and logically, we actually really don't know. Uh, but because we've walked that same, same block, for example, over and over again for the past, you know, three, five, ten years, whatever, we think we know that the, the tree is going to be right around the corner. But we really don't know, you know. And, and uh, to have that attitude uh, moment to moment is, uh, well, as one of my teachers likes to say, the, the mundane becomes sublime. And I really love that expression uh, uh, because it, it really allows us to see the world in a much more creative, uh, vibrant uh, space.
0: Yes, yes, it really does. I think that it could sound confusing or almost uh, scary to mm-hmm. some people, um, including myself at times, to go into total don't know mind because you, you know the first instinct of, uh, thought is basically to be like, what do you mean? I don't know. I'm going to be totally lost. I'm going to be totally helpless if I don't know. But, but the exact opposite is actually what happens. You know, you admit you don't know and you feel more secure. It's, it's paradoxical, I guess.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like the way you phrase that. It is an admission, you know, because uh, and that's the, I think the first resistance that comes up to a practice like that is uh the ego you know Of as you know I, I think a lot of uh cultures a lot of societies a lot of human beings uh they think they're valuable because they know something right i mean that's you know our whole education m- m- many societies and cultures are based on uh our value being rated as according to how much we know uh, and so so it really raises a lot of, uh, like you said, fear or, or um, trepidation uh, for people to meditate on the idea that we actually really know very little. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. And yet in, there's always a certain kind of relief when I can allow myself to, you know, fully admit, as you say, it's almost like confession in, in Christianity, you've just got to confess to my utter my utter ignorance of of just simply not knowing not even knowing what this whole existence really is at the end of the day can't yeah. can't really say for sure i
1: think for me you're right it is good getting over that that first hurdle uh and uh, i think um you know it kind of well once you once you do uh, and I, anybody who's listening to this, I very much encourage this practice of don't know mind it's it is a beautiful practice and and so but getting over the first days or weeks of of uh of fear perhaps that might arise during a meditation like that uh what does tend to happen is that um that's you, things just become uh take on that amazing amazingness you know it's like wow this this life is really uh Uh, what a miracle, what a miracle that it is that, that I can breathe, that I have a body that has, uh, you know, components from all different types of life. Uh, that's, um, the atoms in my body are the same atoms in, in the stars. Uh, and, and it's just, uh, when you start to really break it down, the, the, the miracle of consciousness of life, of experience, um, it's extraordinary, and it really becomes uh, real uh, in a very tangible way uh, with the, that practice of don't know that that you know, or asking, simply posing that question over and over again like a mantra. What is this? What is this experience? Uh, because the mind will start to answer it. You know, it'll say, "Oh, well, this experience is you know, I'm you know, sitting in the sun, enjoying the the breeze." But what is that? You know, who's having that experience? What is that experience? And then you can keep going back and forth with the question the mind tries to answer it, the question the mind tries to answer it, and eventually you just come to a place where there's no answer anymore. Uh, and that's really the place of pure creativity. Uh, it's really, really extraordinary.
0: Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think that it's... Uh it's a letting go that can really make the mundane uh miraculous it's Mm -hmm. it's really a nice subtlety i uh i wanted to ask you too just in terms of you you know you do one-on-one sessions and you know you've had plenty of students uh, all sorts of students i'm sure like over the years and I'm just wondering how, uh what your experience was helping students through situations where, let's say, not really like mine, where I'm divorced and processing the aftermath, processing the marriage, but more a situation where um they're currently in a bad relationship, or they have somebody they're living with that they don't get along with, or they have a family member that's just really, um, you know, wreaking havoc on their, their head and heart, uh, you know, what, what you offer to those in in that situation?
1: Well, there's never a pat answer, you know, and, and that, I think, it you know, um, I, I think that needs to be, uh, Known and looked at and respected. That 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 every when I see people one on one, I really try to be a, precisely in the present moment with that person and to hear uh, what they're saying verbally, uh, what they're conveying uh, through their body language, um, and try to be as sensitive as I can to their uh, experience of what's happening, um, and from there. I design uh, a, a meditation practice, usually, um, based on what they're revealing uh, to me in that exchange. Uh, I try to be as compassionate as I can uh, in that moment where I can hold space for that person's suffering uh, as well as I can. Um, because I think, <clears throat> if anything, that's going to help them. Uh as much as any practice that I give them to work on, on their own. If I can just be that compassionate space for that person's suffering in that moment, uh, more often than not, I find that that leaves, well, it, it, it relieves them of something, you know, they're able for at least that hour where we meet, uh, they're able to put some of that down. Uh, and, and so that allows them to reenter that situation <clears throat> With a little bit of that heartache resolved, and I think that's that's quite that can be quite profound for people. So, so to be the compassionate space that they're looking for in that hour uh, of that one-on-one <clears throat> is usually uh, my first priority, uh, and then again being in the present moment with what they're conveying, uh, a teaching usually some sort of um, loving kindness based practice, uh loving kindness for themselves, uh, so that they continue they can continue uh holding compassionate space for their own suffering um going forward, uh, whether if I'm gonna meet with them once a week or once a month, uh trying to give them the tools uh to meet that situation uh so that they can relieve their own suffering, their own pain. Uh, you know, because I'm not going to be with them, you know, throughout the days that they have to cope with that. Um, Also, I I find that uh, when people can be, you know, will have a tool that can help them be in the present moment in situations like like that, uh, using mindfulness-based practices, feeling the breath, feeling the clothing on the skin. Also, I like uh, for people who have trauma, or, or in really uh, traumatic situations currently, I, I find that uh, an external source of the present moment, like a sound, if they can focus on the sounds of the present moments, uh, Because oftentimes people who have trauma or are in the middle of a traumatic experience, those emotions and those, uh, that, those traumas are being stored in the body. So oftentimes if they try to be in the present moment and they go into the body, that can actually be triggering for for somebody if they're holding trauma, if they're experiencing trauma. Uh, So to come into the present moment using the sounds of the present moment can actually uh, be really helpful uh, for people in those types of situations. So I often recommend, if I can ascertain that that's what's happening for this person in front of me, I recommend that they hear the present moment before trying to feel the breath or before trying to feel the body, uh, listen to the sounds, or if they can, uh, take something in the present moment of visual experience, maybe looking at their shoes or or looking at any any object that's in front of them, preferably something that has some sort of um, personal attachment to it, because that will allow them to anchor into the present moment uh, easier if they have that personal attachment, maybe a gift that somebody gave them when they were a child or something like that. I had one student who would use uh, prayer beads, and she carried prayer beads with her all of the time so that when uh, she was in a situation where she was getting triggered but knew she had to be in the present moment, uh, she would just hold the prayer beads. And and uh, we found that it was really effective for her uh, to be able to encounter uh, these experiences. Now, I also want to say that we never should use any of these techniques to condone bad behavior. So if we're in an abusive situation, uh, or if we're in a situation where we're repeatedly getting hurt, get out of that situation. I I for me that's I think uh, really uh, important. Uh, that that we should never use these practices to oh i can I can be with this I'm stronger you know and and then to continually uh be inflicted with harm uh so I think that's that's also really important that to know that that it's okay uh to leave a situation that's that's harmful and to to and and that's appropriate it's more than okay it's it's it that's what should be. Uh, being done, is that one needs to take care of their own safety emotionally and physically, uh, first and foremost. So if the situation is that severe, then I think um, you know getting out of harm's way needs to be the first uh, step forward.
0: Yeah, it's really good to hear you say that. And I also kind of thought of the um, converse, I, I think that's the right word, but the converse or inverse of what you just mentioned, where um, you could be in a safe situation now and you could also, well, well the opposite basically of what you're saying is don't use it as an excuse not to take action, to take care of yourself. But I guess you could also be in an okay place and you could think, well, I've got to do X, Y, and Z before I really let go, you know, of the mantra, almost thinking like, oh, okay, well, I may be safe in my home situation, but my life isn't really perfectly kind of the way I want it to really be comfortable to let go. I've got to wait until I have X amount of money, or I've got to wait until, you know, like I have a better, uh job or you, you know what I'm saying like you could you could almost think you have to do all of these things before you could let go
1: yeah
0: I'm not sure i understand uh so let go of well, well well so you're basically you're presenting a situation where um don't do the practices to get comfortable in a bad situation, definitely mm-hmm. leave the situation, and I'm saying like if you took that to an extreme, you could think, well, I'm not going to use my meditation practice as an excuse not to um, get in a better situation first. So I'm going to keep trying to improve my situation before I, you know, can really let go in meditation. Oh, yeah. It's it's, it's like external change versus internal. Like if the practices are internal, And then there's external. Obviously, if you're in a bad external situation, yeah, get out of it. Then you can kind of get into the internal. Right. But yeah. but you could also take it the other way of like thinking like you've all you gotta keep changing your external situation to get it just right before you can really go into don't know mind. It's sure. like yeah, I'm fine <laughs> with don't know mind as long as I know exactly how the next year is gonna go. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. right. Yeah,
1: exactly. No, I, I know and, and you count I encounter this sometimes when I'm facilitating uh retreats, that the first day or two on the retreat everybody who's there is just pissed off, you know, because they want to change. We should, we should have dinner at this time and not this time, or we should, I should have a softer chair to meditate on, or I should, you know, we should have, you know, you know, lunch at X, Y, Z time and so forth like that. And so everybody wants to change everything to fit their comfort zone, not recognizing that they're actually in the retreat to challenge their comfort zone. (laughs) So, so there is that. And, And so, and here, I actually, I'm glad you mentioned this because this uh, brings up the, the challenge zone, the comfort zone, and the too hot zone. Uh, and this has become a, pretty much a staple in my teaching nowadays. And I use I use a, a graph, uh, which we're doing this uh, as an audio, so nobody can see the graph, but it's three circles. There's a, a inner circle, a middle circle, and an outer circle. And so the middle circle—that's the comfort. Uh, the, yeah, the first circle, the middle circle—that's the comfort zone. That's generally where we are when we're comfortable in life, sitting on the couch, having a snack, whatever it is. Uh, that's the comfort zone. Generally, that's where we start when we're meditating. We start in the comfort zone, hopefully, you know. And, and then the second circle is the challenge zone. And so when the meditation practice, maybe we get into meditation for ten minutes, fifteen minutes or so however long, uh, hopefully then we start to enter into the challenge zone. You know, there might be a lot of thoughts, there might be an emotion that comes up, things like that. That's where the growth happens. And, and, and so ideally in meditation, you wanna kind of float between the comfort zone and the challenge zone, comfort zone and the challenge zone. Now the outer circle, that's the too hot circle. That's when things get like really emotionally charged, or you know uh there's just too many thoughts and we can't we have to get up and do something else or you know things are it's just too uncomfortable we can't sit there any longer for whatever reason um and you know that zone you know that the the too hot zone because your body just gets really tense or the mind gets really tense uh you start looking at the clock every 30 seconds so forth like that not much growth happening there in the in the too hot zone it's it's just too overwhelming uh and so if that happens i generally encourage people to go back to the comfort zone either stand up or take a breath or you know just do something to recalibrate uh, so you can get back to the comfort zone now if that's impossible then you're finished with the meditation just get up and do something else but don't keep trying to push through Uh, No matter, even if it's just been two or three minutes in the practice, if you're already in the too hot zone and you can't recalibrate, get up and do something else. And I find this is really important. Uh, uh, This is a really important tool to emphasize uh, for people who are meditating with trauma or with challenging emotional situations, uh, because that too hot zone can really emerge rather quickly and if that happens, you know, day in, day out for a week after week, uh, people just stop meditating, you know, because they're, they're, they just can't do it. it. It becomes a resistance against the meditation practice itself, uh, which is really unfortunate because as you and I know, uh, meditation can be a, a, a tremendous healing tool uh, for people with emotional challenges, for people. People recovering from trauma. I myself had a PTSD for a couple of years, and and mindfulness practice was uh, integral in my recovery from from uh, post traumatic stress disorder. And and many people who I teach uh, come to me uh, with those same struggles. And so I've seen it in myself, and I've seen it in many many students uh, that this can be a a tremendous healing tool as long as we can remain uh outside of that too hot zone and when we get into that too hot zone to recalibrate come back to the comfort zone maybe try again if we want if a person gets into the too hot zone more than once i always say that's that's the end of the practice session for that day get up take a walk yeah make a cup of tea do something else watch a nice movie whatever it is uh, but but leave the meditation for the next day and come back again when you're when you feel emotionally stable, when you're nice, uh, relaxed, and you can uh, get into the practice again.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and that really fits with trauma and intense emotional turmoil because it, you know, like you were talking about earlier, going into the body sometimes and into the breath and, and the inner body, the inner being, During times like that, that can be the too hot zone, but listening to outer sounds is a little bit of a relief. I I think probably maybe even listening that may also be kind of why, um, you know, podcasts like these or even um, different YouTube pages of different teachers or even YouTube or Pandora um, tracks of. Uh chanting or classical music that could be a good meditation because it it puts it it gives you something on the outside so you're not trapped in your body with all that crazy,
1: yeah yeah, absolutely, so just as long i mean and all of those audio uh uh tools are great that you mentioned, so the idea if if you want to use meditation as a healing modality. Uh, for trauma or for emotional suffering or pain, uh, the idea then is to allow yourself to just feel just a, a little bit of it, just as much as you can without getting into the too hot zone. So, if you're using a, a, a like a, a, tra- a classical music track, the example you use, which I love actually, I think Beethoven is is perfect for this, or some the Bach Brandenburg Concertos, are really wonderful uh, as a, as a healing modality. Um,
0: it's and, good to know. Actually,
1: I, I highly recommend it. Yeah, and so to to rest, to be able to rest, to, to listen to to the present moment with that music, beautiful music, and then to allow yourself to feel uh, whatever emotion that needs to be felt at the same time, and so that it's it becomes a balance. So you have like the way I always uh, explain it. Uh, when I'm, I give workshops on this sometimes. So uh, 50% uh, emotion, 50% present moment awareness. Uh, and so to try to keep that balance, that evenness. So you're allowing like one hand in the emotion and one hand in the, the music or in the present moment awareness, like that. Uh, and that should keep one in the challenge zone so that enough of the emotion can be felt because we need to feel, the emotion needs to be felt in order to heal. Uh, That has to be a part of the component. So otherwise we're just using the music as an escape.
0: Uh, Well, I think think, though that with trauma sometimes too, though the feeling of the emotion is automatic and it's all the time. hmm. And so you need to break it up. Like the default setting I think with trauma can sometimes be not 50-50, but like 99-1, you know, it's like right. all the, it's the pain all the time. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if
1: somebody's really spinning, you yeah, know, that's what we used to call it. I don't know if they still call it that in, in PTSD where the thoughts are just, you know, going at a million miles an hour and that's all you can, that's all you're doing. That's the too hot zone, you know? And so, and so using an audit auditory experience like Bach or, Whatever it is, a chanting uh, also beautiful uh, thing to do. Um, that that could bring you out of the too hot zone and into the challenge zone. So then, then you can experience enough of the emotion so that some of it can be resolved and be in the present moment at the same time. And again, that's I think really uh, the ideal is to be able to. Uh, the reason why I'm I'm kind of bringing it back to this is because oftentimes people. Use meditation techniques uh, as a form of repression, and and so that can be actually quite harmful.
0: Uh, Really, you think you think you think that's possible? Though, doesn't meditation kind of force the system to kind of feel eventually? Ideally, but I mean, sometimes
1: you know, don't know mind can 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 become don't feel mind because Uh. because thoughts and emotions, as we were talking about earlier arise simultaneously very often and, and often feel like the same thing. Until one learns to experience them as separate, uh, it can feel like the emotions about uh, that experience and the thoughts about the experience are the same. And so one starts to say, oh, that, that's just thinking, and then they, they stamp down the emotion and the thought at the same time. Oh, okay. and so that can be and that's known there's a phrase a term for that called spiritual bypassing uh, yeah
0: yeah of course i've heard that
1: yeah and so that that can be quite harmful actually uh where this emotion gets repressed and you see this sometimes people who who can sit on the cushion for hours and hours and hours and they can be really peaceful meditators and they get up and they're total jerks you know uh, and and you're like, wow, that's really kind of a bizarre phenomenon, and and so that's uh, indicative of some sort of repression that's happened there.
0: And so, well, well, I also think that the people that that would happen with though are people kind of pre-awakening, so to speak. They may not have blown the doors open on their consciousness yet. Yeah,
1: and, and sure, that can happen, and and so people, you know, hopefully, eventually you know that some experience whether it's in meditation whether it's an encounter with a teacher or something off the cushion something will trigger that repressed feeling that emotion and hopefully you know their practice has gotten to them to a place of stability so that they can actually okay now that's coming up and that's you know, wow, I really got into road rage over that guy cutting me off. Why is that? Well, let's look at that. And they'll investigate, you know, oh, that's resonating with, uh, you know, that time that bully punched me out in the third grade or that's resonating, you know, and so the, you know, sometimes that can happen where a present moment experience or an experience that happens in our day-to-day life, uh, if we're, if we've been meditating for a long time, we may have pushed other experiences away uh Through this spiritual bypassing, but again, hopefully eventually that stability in meditation allows one that insight, okay, wow, okay, that's really resonating with that past experience. Let's bring that up, let's look at that, let's see what's happening there uh and that can happen sometimes too, yeah,
0: yeah, and so um well this this conversation has been so rich and even inspiring uh for me in my own practice and i can't thank you enough i kind of want to cut it um you know wrap things up so we'll have uh questions so i'll have questions to ask you for the next episode sure it's been
1: yeah we've talked a good amount and we did get into some really uh deep and, and uh, uh profound and sensitive topics Uh, Yeah,
0: we could even you know we could even go deeper on these same topics more and more too. I think because we mentioned a lot of good practices and uh, but I wanted to let the listeners know about your Facebook live that you're going to be doing on the Contemplative Light Facebook page. Did you set a definite like regular time to do that? I have. (laughs) Okay, great. Uh,
1: Those are so. It, on my time, because because I'm in Thailand, I think I'm 12 hours ahead of you. Um, so here, it's uh, Friday mornings at 9 a.m. and Monday mornings at 9 a.m. So that's, I think, Thursday evening at 9 p.m. Your time. Sunday? Eastern time? Yeah, Eastern time.
0: Or no, no, I'm in not, Central.
1: No, you're in Central time, yeah. So, yeah, you're 12 hours, which is Central time. Uh, so that's yeah, 9 p.m. on Thursdays and 9 p.m. on Sundays.
0: Okay, so that would be 10 p.m. Eastern time every Thursday night, basically, and Sunday, and then and then same time on Sunday, yes, night, yes. Okay, so we're going to basically have Thursdays and Sundays at 10. yeah yeah yeah. which is going to be not which is 9 a.m on the next morning your time basically right here in thailand yeah okay so thursdays and sundays 10 p.m eastern you're on the west coast at 7 p.m um that should give a good variety for time zones oh yeah people in the states which I mean, it's it's definitely not only Americans that uh, follow us. There's we get plenty from all over the world, but mm. I'd say at least at least 70 percent in the states in the continental U.S. So Thursdays and Sundays at ten Eastern, you're going to be doing that, and you're pretty firm like going forward for a while on those times. Yeah, I don't see any obstacles on those times and the next and the foreseeable future. It's not gonna be three weeks from now when you're wait, wait, different time. <laughs> no, if, hic- if there is a hiccup, I'll give you plenty of notice. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I'll I'll just remember to, you know, kind of keep spreading the word of that. And then um I guess I guess you're not doing Zoom you're not doing the Zoom Facebook Live combo with questions. You're just doing Facebook Live, but they could write the questions below, maybe? Yes.
1: That's exactly right. And so every three or four episodes, I'll do a Q&A episode uh, where I'll address, address a bunch of questions. Yeah,
0: Excellent. OK, well, this is really exciting and I'm so glad that um, we're you know, we were talking some before, but now we're interconnected even more in helping people with uh, meditation and contemplative practices um, grow and heal and, and be happy. Yes, indeed. And
1: thank you so much, Clint, for, for the opportunity, for the invitation. I really appreciate it, uh, reaching a, a wider audience. Uh, and as you say, particularly uh, right now, I, I feel, you know, I'm I'm from the States originally. And, and uh, I know the States, there's so much going on right now that needs uh, healing. Uh, so if anything, any little bit that I can do that I can add that I can help, uh, I'm very, very uh, pleased to do that. So thank you. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, yeah, that is good and that's important. That's important to mention. Our our coronavirus cases are higher now than when it all started and uh, case numbers are soaring and people are stressed about economics, people are stressed in general with all the curveballs to our life. Uh the news is at each other's throats. I mean, it's yeah. There's there's a lot of crazy out in the world and on the planet right now. Yeah. So yeah. I think we need this more than more than ever. You know. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm certainly glad that I've been
1: practicing for you know, almost 35 years now, and and, uh, and uh, it's really uh, allowed me to to find a, a space of peace uh, in these turbulent times, and I hope I hope that I can help. Uh, others do
0: the same. Excellent, excellent. All right, we'll take care, Chris. You too. Talk to you next time. Thank you. Bye.